Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. As promised, I am not going to be laser-focused on the playoffs, and this is a great example. I wanted to talk with James Hamm. He is the Sacramento Kings insider for CSN California and CSN Bay Area. He's covered the team for years, knows them incredibly well, and I think their situation is absolutely fascinating, so we've been trying to find the time to do this. So, conversation runs about an hour and a half. We go in a lot of different directions. Those of you who enjoy timestamps, they should be in the description for this wherever you listen to it. As I said, conversation runs about an hour and a half. Really loved it. Hope you enjoy it, too. Thanks so much for coming on. Anytime, man. There are a lot of different avenues to go with Sacramento, but what I personally think is the most interesting is the uh, is this balancing act that they're going to have to do this summer where if you're Vlade, if you're the rest of their front office, you have to you have to balance building a roster that has DeMarcus Cousins as the best player with the very real possibility that 10 months to a year from now, DeMarcus Cousins is not on this roster. I think it's probably uh it's not just a million dollar question. It's it's almost a billion dollar question for the Sacramento Kings. Do they keep DeMarcus or not? And you know, I continue to hear that he's not off limits. He he's not on the block. But if someone comes to the Kings with something that is just so over the top and oh my gosh, then they'll they'll listen. And so you really have to I mean, it plays into everything, though, doesn't it? Uh, when you look, they need a, a new front office guy, which, you know, they keep talking to David Morway. I don't know why, what the delay is there. Uh, again, I, I have no idea. They've talked to other front, a- front office guys. There's not a huge list of front office guys that can come in and help. And they also, they need a new head coach. If I'm looking at a head coach, I want to know whether I have cousins or not. I want to know if he's going to be there or not, because it it makes a big difference. Do I want like George Carl, which of course the George Carl situation didn't work out for myriad of, of reasons. But one of the bigger things about George Carl is he refused to play to the strengths of his players. I want a guy who plays to the strengths of his players and a guy who's had a big man this good, or at least close to this good. So I can design some of my play around him. And if he's not there, then I need something different. Do I, you know, I need something that is more of a pick and roll guy that can work with Costa Kufis on, on rim running and, you know, the things that he does better. And, you know, so I think there's so many decisions that have to be made here in such a short amount of time that I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you, you put them in like on a sheet of paper and say, what is my number one priority? Is it to find a front office guy that can help me balance this or help me make a big trade? Do I find a head coach that will work with DeMarcus or that won't work with DeMarcus? And then the DeMarcus Cousins question. I mean, do do I keep him? Do I not keep him? There's so much that you have to actually focus on here that as a young executive that Vlade Divac is, I don't know how you do it. And all of that is compounded by the fact that Cousins is such a unique, distinct individual player that you're not in a situation where 
if you move him, you will end up with anything remotely like him. You know, there isn't a DeMarcus Cousins light out there. You have DeMarcus Cousins or you do not have him. And how you build an offense around an exceedingly talented, high-usage big man is completely different than anything else. And you're, you're right that that affects the coaching, but to me it also affects what you do with personnel. Sacramento has cap space. Mm-hmm. They don't have a ton of cap space, but what you're looking for in a point guard, what you're looking for in a two, what you're looking for in a four, all those things are completely different if you have DeMarcus Cousins or if you don't. Yeah, and, you know, people say the, the Kings have cap space. Where are they at? Right, Roughly around, they were $22 million, and then the uh, the cap went up again. The projected cap went up again. So I have them, you know, they could clear space up to 30-something million and then they have a bunch of players that in past years they couldn't do anything with. So if you've got Carl Landry and Jason Thompson on your roster, no one is going to take those guys when the salary cap is at 68 million or 69 million or 70 million, whatever it is. But when the cap goes way up higher, now the Kings have a guy like Marco Bellinelli. He's got a two year deal at, you know, roughly $12 million. A lot of teams love a shooter. They know that he can do better than what he did last year. And so you can dump him for a second round pick. You can, if you needed to dump Costa Kufis, you can probably get from a solid playoff team, you could probably get a late 20s first round pick for Costa Kufis. He's got three years at $8 million a year. He's a low, I mean, he's going to play starter minutes for you. He can play starter minutes and he can also, you know, he's reliable. He, he He's a good locker room guy and you've got him locked up. He's still young. You know, for a team like the Spurs, if Tim, Tim Duncan retires, would they take on Costa Kufis for with the cap exploding for the next three years to fill in. I think they would for a first round pick, you know, a late first round pick. So you have all of these abilities, you know, if you want to get rid of Ben McLemore, someone will say the Kings are idiots and they can fix Ben McLemore and they'll take his 3 million bucks off the the books. So the Kings have an ability where I don't think in past years they had an ability to free up cap space. They do this year. And that's without even, you know, talking about Rudy Gay, what are you going to do with Rudy Gay? If you want to trade Rudy Gay, you can take nothing back in return. You can take players back in return. But again, that's 13, 14 million you can clear up if there was something that you could go out and sign. But that's where it really comes down to. Like, who is it that you want to sign? Who is it? Are you going to focus with a, again, a DeMarcus Cousins centric team or are you going to go some other completely different route? Uh, I know Ryan Anderson would love to come home to Sacramento. And, you know, the Kings are, are very interested. And so that's a guy that could eat up a huge amount of cap space. Um, but, you know, you need a shooting guard. Uh, you could use a stretch four. You're probably going to need a point guard, depending on what happens with Rondo. You know, if you're going to deal Rudy Gay, you're going to need a small forward. They have so many decisions to make. It, it could be just blow the whole thing up. Or it could be let's piece this thing back together with, like what they did last year, 10 new players. I mean, we'd be looking at eight to 10 new players again. They had four guys who they signed to one-year deals with a second-year player option, and everybody moaned and groaned when they gave Seth Curry, uh, you know, a a second-year player option. Everyone now is thinking, man, if they would have only given Seth Curry a two-year deal without a player option or with a team option, now they would have Seth Curry for another year. But Quincy Acey can opt out. Karam Butler is going to opt out from what I'm hearing. Um, and, and then on top of that, you have James Anderson. So again, four roster spots potentially just gone. And so they're always in this cycle of replacing huge swaths of the team. And it's something that 
hopefully they, they figure out this offseason. Yeah, my overarching theory of this summer is that cap space is going to be less valuable than it has ever been. You know, unless the right guy comes along at the right price, I'm a little bit concerned about their interest in Ryan Anderson, not because he's a bad player or a bad dude. I, I like him a lot personally, but because he's a little bit older and he has these health issues. And so for me, if you're Sacramento, you are thinking we're going to be better two to three years from now than we are right now. And Ryan Anderson doesn't really fit with that. But where the where the bigger part of this is that as you talked about you have they have a lot of guys that are on contracts that could be conceived as reasonable and I would agree with you that they are is my instinct is that those guys will be very valuable let's say late July and August so the reason for that is that once the market kind of clears out first of all some of those guys whoever you want to name whether it's the high end players like Hassan Whiteside or like Harrison Barnes, you know, those guys are going to get a ton of money. Like Harrison Barnes is going to get paid a lot more than Rudy Gay. And so when you see those guys, what's going to happen all around the league is that the players who are under contract, and this includes DeMarcus Cousins, but he's, of course, in a different situation just from a team standpoint. Those players are going to look a lot better. So you're going to have that balance and you're going to have the teams that want to do well. So I think that's also when you could see the type of thing with Costa Cufos maybe getting a late first is that... You're, he's going to be look so much better in a couple months than he does right now. So you have that. But then the second part of it is you also still have really nebulous assets at that point. So, you know, like if you're trading for a team's first-round pick, you might with the Spurs, you know how good they're going to be. But with other teams, you might not. And if you're Sacramento, part of the benefit of trading a guy like that, let's say you theoretically traded them primarily into space. So the big thing that you're getting back, maybe you're getting back picks, but you're also getting cap space. That cap space is functionally useless at that point for that season. You know, it might be useful long term, but, you know, it's already after everybody signed because that's why your guys are valuable. So that is an incredibly delicate thing to do. But the nice thing about where Sacramento is is that if they haven't, you know, spent money irrationally before that, you can play it by ear, which is exactly what I think they should be doing with DeMarcus Cousins, which is you listen, and if somebody makes an offer that is kind of inconceivably good, then you either try to get it even a little bit better or or you take it. And if that doesn't happen, you can be happy having Costa Kufos. You can be happy having Darren Collison for one more year at $5.2 million. You know, those mm-hmm. types of things. That That's a really nice contract. And so it's a good place to be if you think it's a good place to be, and it's a bad place to be if you think it's a bad place to be. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that really will play out early is the DeMarcus Cousins situation pre-draft. I think everyone is looking at, and you're right, I'm going to bring up a point here that I think maybe the, the people are going to miss, is that the draft is late June, and then July 1st is realistically when the cap goes bonkers. So you aren't going to be able to trade for cap space on at the draft that will be there like six days later which is sort of a strange dynamic to this season, if you understand what I'm saying. So the 2015-16 season ends on June 30th, and the new season begins on July 1st, which is when the, the cap will reset in theory. And so at that point, if you can't make a trade at the... Well, you but, but, what you can, but what you can do is you can come to an agreement and then execute it after the moratorium. Yeah, you can. You can, exactly. So, so that, that's what, the, I, and I think if Cousins is traded at the draft, that's almost definitely what will happen because the, a team will be trading him probably mostly into space. Yeah, because, well, I don't know if it would be mostly into space. That, that That's very possible, but it's also, like, if I'm He's looking so at... He's so cheap, you're right, to, yeah, if they I got mean, anybody back. 
Yeah, you're getting. Uh, I think he's he's going to make 16 million next year. So I mean, uh, you could trade him for Damari Carroll straight up, and the the numbers work actually, which is ridiculous. So basically, what I'm saying though is that the Kings, if they're going to do something, I think they're going to do something pre-draft with Demarcus or on draft day. I, I don't think they're going to wait until the summer. I think what they really want, if if they are going to blow this thing up and they are going to start over from scratch. They're going to want two very, very good serviceable players, and they're going to want a top, top pick or multiple top picks in order to get rid of him. And people are going to go, why would you do that? The guy's only won 33 games in his best year. And the fact is, he's a top five player in the NBA. And if you you don't watch him on a daily basis, you don't understand that. He can be difficult, yes, but he can also be absolutely otherworldly incredible and that is something that that teams around the league, there are only so many superstar players. The the stats are that only, what, the early 2000s Detroit Pistons, that's the only team in the history of the NBA to ever win a championship without a either Hall of Famer, well, a future Hall of Famer on their roster. And that's why people are after Cousins. He has the potential to be a Hall of Famer. If you put him on a 50-win team for five years straight and he's vying for championships and he's a seven, eight, nine-time All-Star, and his career averages are, you know, 25 and, and 12, he's a Hall of Famer. And that's where you really have to look at this. Can the Kings replace him with someone else that has that potential? The answer is no. In this draft, I don't think that either of the top guys are future Hall of Fame players. I don't think anyone in the top 10, maybe somebody gets, you know, just figures it out and it locks in and they're great. But even if you think that, they're two or three years away. And the problem the Kings have is that they're moving into a new arena coming up. And so you have to be good going into the new arena. It can't be – basketball has to be king. It cannot be a complete and utter – we're not going to use profanity, profanity, but blank show. It can't be that. It can't continue to be that when you go into a new arena because you're going to turn fans off so quick. And that's something that the Kings just can't do. So it's such a huge dilemma. It is. And I, I don't know where they go with this. I I think, again, yeah. if I'm the Boston Celtics and I'm offering that the, the Nets pick and, say, Avery Bradley, that's not enough. It's going to cost you Avery Bradley and Jay Crowder and that, that top pick if you are going to get him out of Sacramento. Now, you could say, oh, that's crazy talk. The, the Celtics aren't going to do that. Well, I'm just going to tell you that the Celtics might not do that, but... That's what it will cost. And so if they want a generational big man who's 25 years old and who averaged 27 points and 11 and a half rebounds last season as one of the top five players in the league, it will cost everything, everything that they have outside of Isaiah Thomas. And that's what you have to pay. Yeah, I think that the way that I put it before in other trade negotiations, not with DeMarcus, is there's an economic theory called the double coincidence of wants. And so what what that is, it ties back to the old kind of barter economies. And so the challenge with negotiating in those terms was that you had to have people that wanted what the other side had. So, you know, somebody selling radishes and wants coins... And then actually coins is a bad example because that's why money exists. But, you know, they want they want beats or something. And so the other person has to want it and value it about the same. And it's completely justifiable for Sacramento to think 
that highly of DeMarcus Cousins. He is that kind of talent. I mean, I see him more as a top 10 player, a top 5 talent physically, but that's not, that's a kind of a distinction without much of a difference. Mm-hmm. But you also run it, so, and I understand why you, you don't give that away for, for nothing, but you also run into the challenge where if you wait beyond, let's say if you wait beyond this off season, and I think the most likely time if they move him would be actually towards the trade deadline. Yes. In, towards the trade deadline is that if they wait after that, let's say, you know, April of 2017, DeMarcus Cousins is still a member of the Sacramento Kings, then you are providing a lot less value to the trading team because they are only getting one season and one playoffs, and he is an unrestricted free agent. He will be a very young unrestricted free agent. He will have mm-hmm. a, you know, a little bit of a lower cap hold because he's because his contract has been so low. But you're only getting that kind of value. So you, as as a point in Sacramento, like you have to balance this idea that he is really valuable and that you want him and that you want him to be a part of your future with the idea that once February 21st or whatever the deadline's going to be next year hits, his value falls. And if he doesn't resign, then eventually it gets awfully close to zero. And so that isn't to say that the Kings should sell low or anything like that. I I firmly disagree with that. It's just incredibly challenging. It is, but people are still going to look at him and say, I'll take him for a year. And and don't forget, during that summer, they can negotiate an extension to go beyond the next season. So if if they do have to wait until next summer to trade him, uh, which I don't think, uh, it's either now or they they give it six months, and if it's not working out on February, whatever, then they deal him then, or they're keeping him forever. And the strange thing about Cousins, just so people know this, he doesn't want to go anywhere. He's absolutely content in Sacramento. He loves Sacramento. He would love to stay. And so if you're the Kings, that that might be the thing that makes it the toughest, because you know you have an opportunity to not only have him through the next two years, but this is a guy that if he does put it together, if you find the right mix, if you find the right coach, if you find everything and you have this epiphany moment with DeMarcus Cousins, you're talking about a guy that plays his entire career in one place and who sets all of your franchise records and who does all of these things. You know, you're looking at a guy who never leaves if, you, if that's what you want. And that's pretty tough. It's tough to look at him and say, you know, it's not like when you're looking at a a young player and you're like, man, we've got this guy. Let's say you're the Oklahoma City Thunder and like we got Kevin Durant, but there's such a high possibility that he shops himself, that he wants to go somewhere else. And some people are going to say, well, you know, his mom says the other day that, oh, he loves Oklahoma City and he's committed here. Well, sorry, mom, that that changes really quick. And this is a different guy. This is a guy who actually, he openly talks about it. He openly says it. If you ask him off the record, I'm not going anywhere. Like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. And that's that's another element that you have to add to it. I mean, I guess you could also say that the Kings could be stuck with DeMarcus Cousins for another 10 years. And some people would go, uh, you know, because a lot of people around Sacramento have had enough of the antics, but he's such a linchpin. He's a linchpin to the entire thing. Like what happens with DeMarcus Cousins really, it makes or breaks his franchise for the next decade. And the Kings have whiffed countless times in the draft. You know, I, I always say this, like, people forget it's not DeMarcus Cousins' fault 
that the Kings chose to draft Thomas Robinson over Damian Lillard. It's not his fault that the next year they decided to draft Jimmer Fredette over Clay Thompson, who was the next pick, or Kawhi Leonard, who they loved, who was like five picks later. It's not DeMarcus Cousins' fault that they drafted Ben McLemore over Giannis Atetokounmpo. It's not his fault that they drafted Nick Stauskas over anyone else in in the draft that year. He gets the blame for the Kings not winning when realistically the Kings don't win because they're the Kings and they make countless mistakes both in free agency and in the draft. Yeah, and that ties in with, you know, the people who are frustrated with Cousins. And yes, I I understand where that is coming from, but he makes them relevant in a way that this team absolutely would not be without him. And he has basically made them... You want to say, oh, they've only won, you know, as you said, it's, which is a great point, that they've only won 33 games is the most Cousins has won as pro. If he wasn't there, they would be in the, they would be <laughs> like kind of where the Sixers are. Unless they, being that bad, actually gave them better, gave them picks that they might have screwed up a little bit less. You know, but like they that kind would of, have continued to screw them up. Exactly. So, like, they I mean, were, they would be in that place without the arsenal that the, that the Sixers have, let's say. You know, they wouldn't maybe be that bad. Maybe they'd be more like where the Lakers were this year. But Cousins does that, and there is no guarantee, even with the guys that you acquire for him, that you will nail that. And part of the other reason why I don't think that Cousins will get moved at this draft, though it's certainly a possibility, mm-hmm. is there aren't players in this draft, in my opinion, that a team is going to fall in love with. Like there, there are very good players. That I haven't, I don't know this class as well as most of the prior ones, but in you know Simmons and Ingram both have high ceilings, but. There aren't those players where you're just sitting there going, if we have an opportunity to get blank, we're not going to let them pass through our fingers. You know, that, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a romance that those types of players, and they don't always go number one. A lot of times they do, but they don't have to. And that, that kind of a thing, actually, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of story with that, that there's this long standing thing. If you ever want to get somebody who's involved in, who was involved in the Phoenix Suns mad, talk to them about when the Warriors drafted Stephen Curry. Because there was the, basically Phoenix really wanted Stephen Curry and they thought they had a deal for him. But what they didn't understand was the romance part of it, which was that there were members of the Warriors front office that once they drafted Stephen Curry were never going to let him go. And so it basically made that trade concept doomed to fail because they didn't realize that the same reason that they wanted the pick was the same reason this, the Warriors weren't going to give it up. And as it, as it turned out, the Warriors were right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you really look at like the history of the Kings as well, um, some people call DeMarcus a coach killer, and we can go through really quickly. If you look at Paul Westfall, his first coach, yes, what happened there was mainly DeMarcus Cousins' fault and, and running into a stubborn coach, a very religious stubborn coach, who thought he had the backing of the franchise and didn't have the backing of the franchise that he thought and lost his job. So let's let's throw Paul out as like an outlier. Because when you look at the next group, if you look at Keith Smart, Keith Smart got fired because he lost that entire locker room, number one. Number two, he, and Keith Smart's a great man, and I wish nothing but the best for him, especially with his fight with cancer. Absolutely spectacular human being. One of the best that I've met in the league. Problem is, X's and O's. He knew how to look for a problem. He didn't know how to fix it. And that was, unfortunately, that's like, like it would be on... The postmortem for him in Sacramento. He just didn't, he couldn't figure out how to fix this problem and that problem. So anyway, Keith Smart gets let go because the franchise is sold. 
He had one year left on his deal. The new owners came in. They instantly said, you're out. And they brought in Michael Malone. Michael Malone gets fired because front office people and ownership get confused and get and talk each other into letting go of Michael Malone in just a just completely foolish way. Tyrone Corbin, again, so key smart, nothing to do with DeMarcus Cousins. Michael Malone, the only thing you can blame the the Michael Malone situation on with DeMarcus is that DeMarcus got viral meningitis and missed 10 games, and it gave them the opportunity to fire Michael Malone. It's the only way that he's coach killer in that situation. Tyrone Corbin had absolutely nothing to do with DeMarcus Cousins. George Carl, now we get to Carl. Carl made his own bed in his first month and a half on the job in Sacramento. He openly talked that DeMarcus Cousins, that no one is untradeable, that, you know, and then he went right into the offseason and started single-handedly shopping DeMarcus Cousins on the market, even though he didn't have authority. George Carl made his bed in Sacramento. And that's why a lot of people, if you're around Sacramento, people are, people understand why George Carl isn't the coach anymore. If you're on the outside looking in, you see all these guys, oh, George Carl deserved better. You know what? If you walk into any situation and your first line of attack is to change, is to trade the, the franchise's best player, and then your ally in the front office gets fired and you have no way to trade him and you're on an island, you, you made your bet. You're done. He was done. He sh- they, they should have let him go last summer because they already knew that there was no way to fix it. He had already blown his shot with Cousins. Cousins doesn't forget. So again, he's not really a coach killer. Does he torment them? Does he drive them to the brink of insanity sometimes? Sure he does. But so does Lance Stevenson. So does, there are so many players. I mean, James Harden. I mean, Kevin McHale's like, yeah, go ahead and fire me. I'm waiting. Like, I'm ready to leave now. It's okay. Check, please. I mean... There, a lot of these guys are such a handful that you just, it is what it is. I mean, I, but I wouldn't call him a, a quote unquote coach killer because I don't think that that's really the honest truth of what's happened with DeMarcus Cousins. I also think that Cousins would still be challenging, but he would be, it would be perceived very differently if he had better talent around him and if the team succeeded because Something that I've noticed with, you know, covering the Warriors for as long as I have is that winning cures a lot of that stuff. You know, the Warriors have some guys that might be considered challenging to coach in other circumstances, but they win all the time, so it doesn't matter. And that's true of almost any team. And so I think that Cousins, that's something that either the Kings can sell themselves on or somebody who trades for him can sell themselves on is the idea that he also he'd be enthused he's a guy who from what i've seen when i've talked with him and been around him he really cares about winning he wants to win and so i think that could ease a lot of these potential issues especially since he's prodigiously talented offensively and to me offense is more of a collaborative thing so if he has the right players around him and they can really succeed in that way i think he'll be having a good time he'll be enjoying it and yeah there there'll still be issues in practice and all that kind of stuff but i think that they'll be manageable in a way that they seem more untenable now yeah and i think you, you talk about winning cures all. It does. And if you go back, you know, Cousins got suspended late in the season for uh, picking up his 17th tech, which was seriously the stupidest tech I've ever seen in my entire life. With I think it was seven seconds left in, in a blowout. The Kings were up by 12, I think. They got called for a five-second violation or for a, an inbounds violation, which there was no reason. Basically, they said that Rondo ran up the sidelines to pass it in. And they called a delay of game or a, you know, an inbounds violation on the Kings. And Rondo and Cousins start clapping, like golf clapping. 
and he picked up a 17 tech for a golf clap. It wasn't demonstrative. It wasn't, uh, but he was showing up the official. But again, why an official in a game that is over is calling a, an inbounds violation on a team with, you know, literally seven seconds left in a game is beyond me. It doesn't make any sense. So some people are tired of the antics. They're tired of the, the technicals. I, I guarantee you this. If you go back and look at every single one of his technicals, they did not come during a win streak. They didn't come in, in a winning game. They came in a game where things were going out of control and DeMarcus knew he was going to lose and he got frustrated and he did something silly. Now, again, you can go back to he got suspended for one game for the elbow to the head of, of Al Horford early in the season. That's his bad. But I've seen much worse and no suspension at all. I mean, I've seen Cousins catch elbows in the head. No suspension. He gets it because he's DeMarcus, partially. He gets it because he deserves it, partially. And he also gets it because Rondo's on his team who says things that he shouldn't say to officials and makes the Sacramento Kings public enemy number one for the entire season. So there's a, a huge amount of issues of why DeMarcus gets all these technicals. But realistically... All of the, the big name guys get technical after technical after technical. And if you look at what Draymond Green does in, a, in every single game, the difference between him and DeMarcus is that the Warriors are winning and Draymond doesn't get called for technicals. That dude yells at everybody the entire game. He doesn't get called for over the backs that he does from the opening tip all the way through. I mean, that guy is six fouls waiting to happen. The difference is he doesn't play for the Philadelphia 76ers. He doesn't play for the Sacramento Kings. He doesn't play for, you know, insert bad team. He plays for the greatest team in the NBA right now. And so they allow a lot more leeway. They allow him to demonstratively yell at his opponent after he does something great. And, you know, Cousins doesn't get that leeway. And part of it's because he's earned it. And part of it's just because of his situation. Yeah, it is this really challenging thing, and, you know, Draymond, I, I agree with you that he does a lot of things that it, on a different team would be officiated differently, and the people who, who argue there's a, there's a difference between how the league should work officiating-wise and, and the way that it does work, and I, I wish it was a little bit more, let's say, egalitarian would probably be the right word for it, but you, you mentioned him, and I'm I, a little bit surprised that we've gone as long as we have without really talking about him. What is your feel on what happens with Rajon Rondo? Hmm, I would say... A month and a half ago that I was being told that if Cousins stays, then Rondo stays. They're a package deal. That that uh, Rondo has a, a huge influence in the locker room, specifically on Cousins. And that if he wanted to stay, then the Kings would, you know, figure it out. The, they'll figure out a way. And it's kind of weird because the Kings, his contract is kind of strange. Uh, he signed a one-year deal and... He doesn't have, I mean, the Kings can spend up to like $11.4 million per year as a starting salary on him and, and sign him after they sign everyone else. So they don't have to like rescind his rights and stuff. So they can actually do a lot more with the cap and, and exceed the cap. Anyway, the, the deal with him now though is I think I, I, a lot of the players in Sacramento decided to take, I mean, the franchise decided to, to have some of these guys sit. Some of the players decided that they weren't going to play. And I think Rondo kind of put himself, he kind of showed where his, his thinking was when he decided to not play in the final game at, at Sleep Train Arena, Arco Arena. And he sat out to rest, quote unquote rest. And then he didn't play the rest of the season. So I, at this point, 
if I'm a betting man, I think the, the Kings let him go. And I don't think it, it is part of the DeMarcus Cousins situation, the conversation anymore. I think it straight up, I, I have a really good feeling and some people inside there telling me that there's a very good chance he just won't be back. And it's not because he's a bad guy. He actually did a lot of coaching on the floor. He's one of the few guys in the locker room that sided with George Carl and wanted to try to get the team to work under Carl, which is, I think, admirable. But at the same time, he's so different. And you have to have a locker room that's okay with different, with taking in a guy that is just very, very non-NBA player. He's just, he, the way he thinks, the way he looks in around the locker room, the way he acts, the way he talks, everything is different than a typical NBA player. And I have a feeling that he's going to, that the Kings are going to look for cheaper options, especially after they watch Darren Collison try to will the team to wins down the stretch. I mean, the Kings would have won two or three more games in the last 10 if they didn't pull Darren out and say, look, you're not playing. And that's just because Darren has a I refuse to quit mentality. And while he's not the passer that Rondo is, I think the Kings think that they can go get another guy or a young player. They can draft a point guard in the first round. There's a bunch of point guards right around that area. They can get somebody who can come in and fill the minutes while Collison plays, you know, 35 to 36 minutes a game. And they can bring someone up and, and hopefully again, Collison is another player who, like DeMarcus, like Omri Caspi, they actually love Sacramento and they would like to stay and they would like to figure things out. They want things to figure out and for them to win. They're not going to stay here indefinitely because, you know, their clocks are ticking. But if the right situation comes along, they would stay. And I, I think if you look at that, you know, Collison as a, as either a starting point guard or as a six man playing both the two, the one and the two, I think you're not a bad team. And so I think that the Kings will move on from Rondo. That's just my prediction now. I might be wrong. I know that there are tons of teams that are after Rondo. Uh, well, not tons. There are teams that are after Rondo, and uh, they believe the numbers. And, uh, you know, what Rondo did as far as assists this season was just other, you know, it's just incredible what he was able to accomplish. And, I mean, if you really look at Marco Bellinelli shooting like 30% from the field and the Kings having not – a a great lot of shooters around him. And for him to average almost 12 assists a game is just nuts. I mean, especially you look at DeMarcus's usage. So, you know, a lot of his points do not come off assists because he's a, a dribble drive guy. He, he, he backs you down. I mean, he has all these other facets to his game. So Rondo to come up with that many assists on a team that won 33 games is pretty incredible. But I also think that a lot of those assists are kind of hollow because the Kings weren't in a lot of games or those assists really didn't impact the outcome of a game. So I, I don't know. If I'm betting, though, I'm saying he's not back. I think overall that's a very good thing for Sacramento because Ron. So my issue with Ronda with them getting him in the first place was exactly the same thing that I didn't like about the Clippers getting Jeff Green. The contract he signed for that year wasn't great. I mean, you're not you're not getting surplus value in that way, but you know his his he was worth you know easily worth ten million to this team this year. Yeah. But 
the worry was always the next contract, was that he would play well enough that they would make that mistake, and because that money will stay on the books for a lot longer, you know, he's, I think he's already 30, he might not age very well, we'll have to see, I think his defense is substantially worse now than it was when he was in, when he was at his best in Boston. Oh, of you course, know, course. it's horrible. Yeah. And so, I worry about that, and so if, if they're able to get out, you know, get out of it kind of clean with that. I think that's a really nice thing. Something the Clippers will not do with Jeff Green, which is, which is of course a concern. So that's a nice sign to me. Whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons matters, but it doesn't matter that much. Collison is, is a player with that. And also just the idea that whatever your future is, your future is not with a early 30s point guard. It's, it's just not. And so, and Collison, I agree with you. He's, a guy who I think of him more as a second unit guy, but a high end second unit, so he can play yeah, with the starters yeah. and do that. He he played well with Chris Paul. He's done at various moments in his career. He's done that, and also, so I think that where that leads into though is actually one of the challenges that I've had in thinking about Sacramento is I'm not sure anybody, and we'll exclude Demarcus from this because he's his own thing. We've already spent a lot of time talking about it. Uh-huh. If you were to think about the rest of this roster in terms of the guys who you are the most confident will be here. Let's say that we'll be here two years from now. So July, that will be in Sacramento, July of 2018. I'm assuming it starts with Willie Cauley-Stein, but I'm going to defer to you since you know this far better. I'm going to say it starts with Willie Cauley-Stein, and if I'm being completely 100% honest, it ends with Willie Cauley-Stein. If I'm going to say who I can guarantee will be here in two years, that's it. I, I think that... The other guy who would love to be here forever and who came back to Sacramento and signed not only a, like, basically NBA free deal last year, but then uh, signed a two-year extension that for this year and for next year is Omri Caspi. He's, a, again, he came to Sacramento as, like, a green kid from Israel, and he did not know what to do at all, and the community opened their arms and, and embraced him so incredibly that he wanted to come back here and and play here again and wants to live here and wants to set up shop. Again, like what I brought up with Collison. Collison has a young family. He's got a wife and a little boy, and they would love to make Sacramento their home. And people on the outside who say, oh, Sacramento, you know, it's an outpost. Oh, you know, they talk so negatively about Sacramento. Like, who wants to go there? If you look back at all the players that have come through Sacramento and how many stay and live here forever, it's huge. Players love Sacramento. Bobby Jackson, he's a Sacramento guy. He's not leaving. And and he wasn't born and raised here. You know, Doug Christie comes back nonstop. Brad Miller lives in Sacramento. I mean, all of these guys live here. They love it. And it's because you can come here if you're a a 21-year-old kid and you're going through the whole process of, of learning how to be a man and, and all these things and, and you're living the NBA lifestyle, then Sacramento's not for you. But the good thing about the NBA structure is that you don't get to stay in Sacramento for just your 20, your, your, you know, 19, 20, 21. You have to live in an area for, you know, it's five years pretty much. And for most players, it's usually seven years that they stay in that first city. And by that time they become mature men and they, they, start having, you know, girlfriends that are going to be long-term. And, you know, you have a guy like Rudy Gay who comes to Sacramento. He has two kids while he lives in Sacramento. If things have worked out better, then he would be here for a long time because this is a place where him and, and Echo can, like, raise their kids. But 
young NBA players are like, oh man, it's it's quiet, it's too quiet, it's too dead. But again, I think that's going to change too because the the new arena and the district that's going in right next to the new arena is going to be a lot more NBA, young NBA player friendly. There's going to be lots to do. There's going to be lots of nightlife and things like that. So I think it, it will change, but it's a good landing spot for any veteran that wants to come and kind of settle down and, and be a family guy and, and all that stuff. I don't even know what your question was. But I think, oh, I do. I know what your your question your question was about who's going to be here. I think Willie Cauley Stein, and I love Willie Cauley Stein. He is like the way his brain works is just so fun to watch. As far as an interview, and when you get him in a mood and he starts looking at you and he starts, you know, really getting into it, he is absolutely a joy. And uh, and then the other would be Caspi because I think he loves to be here. But I also think that. Caspi is the best deal in the NBA and that teams all around the league would, would love to have him. And that if the Kings aren't on a playoff track at the end of this, this coming season, uh, then it's very possible that he could, you know, go find somewhere to play for a couple of years and chase, you know, rings while he's in his late twenties going into his thirties, but he will end up back here or, you know, he'll, he'll always have a home here. Yeah, and I think that's a really good perspective on how an NBA player's attitude towards where they live and everything else changes over time. And you certainly do see that. And it's also, to me, why it's so important to have some success early on, because I think that allows you just to think more long term, let's say, at that five to seven year mark. I think that that's going to be part of the challenge, honestly, with Anthony Davis in New Orleans, because in New Orleans, of course, a lot of people really enjoy living there and all that kind of stuff. But if the team has been bad basically the entire time you've been there, it gets harder to envision that because you associate it with so many other painful things. And, you know, I think that that could be a part of it. But so back to colleague Stein, though, do you think that from what you've seen so far, do you think that his most likely not end game, but his most likely near-term future, so two to three years from now, when, let's say as he's getting close to finishing this rookie contract, is as a as a starting center, or do you think it, it might be something a little bit different than that? No, I think he's a starting power forward. Okay. I, I, think, I think he can play both positions, but you're going to need someone with weight down low. If you're gonna, it, it's kind of a little bit like Anthony Davis, not in their play style, but in their physique. And so, you know, the reason you have Amir Ashik is because he can face off against DeMarcus Cousins for 25 minutes a night. And then Anthony Davis, if he does have to shift over, he's going to play him for like 12 minutes a night and not just get completely beaten down. And I think Cauley Stein is going to spend a lot of time in the offseason working on things like gaining weight. Uh, he did that in pre-draft and he gained, I think, 25 pounds in a really short amount of time. He has an ability to add muscle and to add weight, but he's never been taught things like how to work out in a weight room coming into the NBA, which is really strange. Especially um, when he went to Kentucky, where you think they would, considering all the other NBA stuff they develop, you would think they would have a, a big emphasis on that. Yeah. Maybe but, they just don't have the time because of the college rules. I guess, but when he came in, he literally said that he had no idea how to watch film and he never worked out at all. He never worked out in a weight room until pre-draft. And he gained, like I said, I think it was 25 pounds and he increased his vert by four inches. I mean, his athleticism and like his potential is so incredibly off the charts that I don't know how to, I can see him being so much more down the road. 
And that's weird because he was a three-year college player. And so you kind of thought that you're getting what you're getting. And he's not super young, but his mentality is young. His athleticism and ability to improve is is very... He's just at the beginning. He's the the tip of the iceberg. Because if you go to Kentucky, you're one and done. That's typically what you do. So I think as opposed to him being a junior coming out of Kentucky, he was more like a three-time one-and-done, if that makes any sense. Because when when you're at Kentucky, it's, you know, let's start at the very beginning every single year because I need to get you to do this so we can win championships. And that's all I need you to do. Well, when you take those constraints off and you put them into an NBA system – then we get to see really what Kentucky players can do, what DeMarcus Cousins can do, what Carl Anthony Towns can do, what, you, what Anthony Davis can do. These guys are just so incredible. They can do so much more than what we saw at Kentucky. I mean, DeMarcus Cousins was chained to the post. He was literally chained to the basket at Kentucky. So was Towns. Yeah, and, and you watch the, these guys now. I mean, you watch DeMarcus Cousins cross up a point guard off the dribble. You're like, are you kidding me? Uh, there's never, in my Years of watching the NBA, there's never been a big man that can dribble like DeMarcus Cousins. They well, can especially handle. the the big in terms of, of like heft and frame. You know, like Durant is big too, but Durant is big and thin. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, a, a legitimate center that can handle the ball like this. Like I asked Chris Gent uh, a couple of years ago when he was on Michael Malone's staff. I said, hey, you played with Hakeem Olajuwon. I said, compare Hakeem and DeMarcus because to me, they both have like this similar ability as far as a post player. Just again, Marcus has a slink to him. He has an ability to contort his body in a way that's just like incredible. Again, you get to watch Steph Curry all the time because you're down with the Warriors and it's a joy to watch, right? You know, some guys like Clay Thompson can light it up and you're like, oh, he's a really good player. But watching something different, watching someone who can do something so incredible like Steph Curry it it's different. It's uh, I always go back to the Sonic's uh, Sonicscape movie, where they have a journalist or a who's also a poet who starts describing what it's like to watch Ray Allen uh, do something where he's the greatest three point shooter in the world, and you get to watch someone who is the greatest at something every single night, which you don't just get to do in your normal day of life. You don't get to go listen to the greatest pianist in the history of you know. Pianist, you know, you don't get to see that every day. But if you go to every single Sonics game during that time and you get to watch an artist do his craft, which is what you get to do with Steph Curry. Well, people who don't get to watch DeMarcus Cousins, they don't get to see all of the incredible things he can do. And that's where, you know, again, I don't even know where we were going with this, but where you see things in somebody that are great. Now, I, I do, again, I remember where we were going. Willie Cauley-Stein. Willie Cauley-Stein isn't going to be DeMarcus Cousins. He's not going to be Anthony Davis. But what he is going to be is probably, I want him to be, and what I hope that they aim him towards is young Dennis Rodman, where Dennis Rodman was averaging 14, 15 points a game for the Detroit Pistons. He could jump out of the building. He can get way above the rim. But a much bigger version than Dennis Rodman. So he needs to get stronger. He needs to build all of these things. But that's who I see him as. And again, the way the NBA is going, where centers are going away, I guess Willie Cauley-Stein could play a lot of center position, but it's going to be like on a fast-paced team. It's not going to be, if you go up against Marc Gasol in the post, he's going to get owned. 
just because he doesn't have the strength. A couple things. I think that what I've liked about Collie Stein for a long time, including his time in Kentucky, summer league, watching the Kings, is that he has these very ambitious instincts where he has this confidence that, like, if the guy is coming down the lane or whatever, he's like, oh, I can get there. I can block that shot. And, you know, most of the time he does. But the idea, the kind of the audacity of that, another guy who has that is Giannis. He does that defensively. You know, there are some things that Giannis has, some flaws that he has. But I think that's one thing that I really like. And Collie Stein's like that all the time. And it's really good. And you brought up Rodman. The player that I would analogize, and I actually wrote about this pre-draft, is I think Collie Stein defensively, not offensively, and that's, of course, an issue. Mm -hmm. Defensively, I think he's a bigger Draymond Green. Collie Stein is the most physically, like, agile. Like, the way he moves reminds me a lot of a guard, just in terms of that he's so quick. He is, uh-huh. his acceleration is really incredible. Like, that's something that's different. I'm trying to remember, there was somebody, oh, uh, DeAndre Ayton, I think, is the guy that I was thinking of, who's one of the draft prospects in a couple of years who I saw at the Hoop Summit. He's kind of like that, too, where he's he gets to top speed really fast. And that's a great thing if you're, what you're going to be doing is a lot of switching and things like that. So I think that, D, that Draymond should be the model for that. You know, offensively, he's probably not going to ever hit threes or, or like do do the ball handling stuff that Draymond does. But if you can provide just the defensive value of the guy who finished second defensive player of the year the last two years, you're in a really good place. And I agree with you on the center thing, but at the same time, I think that two to three years from now, the centers that play that are those real back-to-the-basket guys, I think those are mostly going to be second-unit players. We're going to be in the place where they have been run off the floor in starting lineups for the most part. You know, you'll have the Carl Towns, the Porzingis's of the world, but that's because they're better. But the Al Jeffersons, the Ennis Canners, I think those guys are all, though in two years, I think a lot of those guys will already be on second units. It's, it's very possible that that is going to be the case. And, you know, the, the guy that a lot of people want to compare Willie Cauley-Stein to is Tyson Chandler. And the, Tyson Chandler is an exceptional defender and rebounder, or he was when he was younger. He is nowhere even in the spectrum of the athleticism that Willie Cauley-Stein possesses. The quick feet, the, uh, again, there's a difference between a guy who can jump in and, you know, get his hands all over the place and, and do all these things, which are, you know, defensive minded, but there's a whole nother level when you see a guy who has a fluidity to him that so few have. I mean, again, Aaron Gordon is a guy, but Willie Cauley-Stein is like five inches taller than Aaron Gordon. I mean, he's that big. He's a legitimate seven-footer who flies around, and it's not just his ability to leap. It's his ability to, you know, to fly in the air and do things that are different, and that's what I see from him. It, it, again, he's he's just such a different style of player, and I think the Kings will bring him along in a way that every time you see him, you'll go, huh, I didn't know he could do that, and it's slowly progressing. I mean, he can hit a 20-foot jump shot. No questions asked. He's got a very smooth stroke. He can catch a lob anywhere around. But that's the one deal with when it comes to Rondo. Rondo created for Collie Stein so many times. As soon as you put Collison in the same situation, he just isn't a natural creator for a big man like that. And he's not a lob guy. He He's not a guy who, who breaks down and flings the ball over his head and you see Collie Stein come in for a dunk. That's where I think you need, as a young player, Collie Stein needs a legitimate pass-first guy, and hopefully he can develop further 
you know, and as his game progresses, he won't need that as much. But, you know, again, DeAndre Jordan, if you put DeAndre Jordan with a a non-passing point guard, that dude's almost useless. I mean, he can defend, he can he can dunk on putbacks, but if if Chris Paul and others on that team aren't creating alley-oop opportunities, then what is he? He has no post move. He has, I mean, all of these things that he doesn't have, we could keep listing. That's where I see Cauley Stein as like, he's a guy who we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's, well, a, it's a difference between Drummond and DeAndre. You know, Drummond, I think Drummond has, he doesn't maybe have the instincts that DeAndre has developed at this point. Also, DeAndre's been playing with Chris Paul for all these years, and I'm yeah. sure that helps. And it, yeah, I, I think that... <laughs> With the difference, I'll, I'll mention one thing with Colley Stein and Tyson Chandler is that I think what part of what makes Colley Stein interesting, Chandler was a good athlete, but he was more of a kind of vertical, physical, physical intelligence type of athlete, as opposed to Colley Stein, who's just a beast and does lateral movement stuff, which I think is where the league is going. Like, I think that Colley, the, Chandler was very good for what he, for what the league needed then. And I think Colley Stein is very good for where the league is going. And that's fortunate because you'd rather have somebody who's, future than somebody who's present because that's where the league is when you're when a guy's in his early 20s you your his peak value is going to be four or five years from now and so i'm very excited with that but i also want to go back to what you said with, with cousins because that was a, a really great thought that is i i've somebody you know I, i've written i write a lot of league pass work i watch the league a lot is that there are players in the league all of the time but especially now who i get transfixed with be by the idea partially what you talked about with that they always do things that surprise you but also the idea that they're, they're still exploring things with themselves. And a lot of times that happens with guys who are young or guys who developed late. And Giannis is probably a good example of this. You know, he played in, played in Greece against not the greatest competition in the world before the NBA. And it's so exciting to see players, especially those who do it from an, un, from an unusual physical perspective, really grow their games and, and do a lot with it. And with Cousins and with Colley Stein, with all these guys, the, a coach who really, you know, who, who finds the right message for them, who gets them in gear, can get them to a level that we haven't seen yet. And then the other piece of that, which we just got to with, with Rondo and Colley Stein, is surrounding talent. And so the Kings have, in those two players in particular, two guys who I think in the right circumstance could be absolutely awesome players, but whose value diminishes kind of substantially when they're in anything less than that. Hmm. Well, I, I, I'm going to bring up, okay, one thing. You keep bringing up Giannis with, with regards to Willie Cauley-Stein, and I couldn't agree more. I think he's the big man version of, of Giannis because you see, you see the beginning. You see like, oh my gosh, look at the talent. Look at that is something that I think, again, is is completely, if you really pull those two out and, and they're outliers, they can do physically, they can do so much more than almost anyone else. If they figure it out, then you're going to see like next generational things. And again, with Cousins, you know, I was comparing him to Curry. Again, you're seeing something that's so different. Now, if I take those two and I've got them as my twin towers, for the next, even still, I mean, Cousins is only 25. They could be there for another eight years, 10 years together. I, that is something that if you put the right pieces and the right coaching staff together, that you could have something like next generation. I, well, counter to the generation that we're in right now, the Golden State Warriors, I think it's a competing 
a competing idea because if I'm looking at the Golden State Warriors right now and I'm and I'm a team in the league who's like okay I need to model we need to model what we're doing after the Golden State Warriors well you already lost you're it's already game over I mean you have no chance ever to defeat the Golden State Warriors playing Golden State Warriors ball and that's because there's only one Steph Curry there's only one guy that can do what he can do and you're not going to find another one so good luck with that and you match him with with clay thompson in the backcourt you add a dream on green look the warriors will be great as long as they have those three players together like harrison barnes whatever we can we can find another small forward who can do things here and there but that trio adds such a dynamic that if any team is trying to replicate what they're doing it's a fool's errand that's why you don't see the Spurs playing Golden State Warriors basketball. You play this, you see the Spurs playing their game that they keep transforming because they know that they can't do what they do. Like the old Sacramento Kings team in the early 2000s, no one could have matched what they did. You had Vladi Divac, you had Chris Webber, you had Paige Stoyakovic, and it really, you know, you added pieces in here and there. You took them out with, you know, Doug Christie and and Mike Bibby or Jason Williams, you know, you have these other pieces, but the synergy that you got from those three players, their skill sets and what they could do was magic on the court. Now, did they win a championship? No, but that's because you had a one-man wrecking ball in Shaquille O'Neal matched with one of the great perimeter players of all time. But my my point is like, the next generation of basketball, it, it will be a lot of posers, a lot of teams that are trying to compete with the Golden State Warriors. And what they don't get is that you can't be them. You have to be something different that can beat them in your own way. And that's why I look at the possibility of Cousins and Cauley Stein, and then you put some other pieces around them that fit perfectly with what they can do. But that takes, it takes like a grandmaster. You got to be able to see five steps ahead. And that's a very difficult proposal for anyone but I mean, that's that's kind of where I I would never trade cousins. I always go back to what is the movie uh, The Mexican with with Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts and Tony Soprano, <laughs> and he says, "When is it time? You know, when is it time to give up on when you love somebody? When is it time to give up?" And the answer is, it's never. It's never. The Kings will never be able to replace Demarcus Cousins. So that's it. If you can't ever replace him. If you might not ever get another Hall of Fame quality player for the next ten years, you can't let him go. You gotta, you gotta keep figuring out different ways to make it work. And I know maybe that sounds like insanity—the definition of insanity: taking the same guy and trying to do the same thing. I, I think you just have to keep mixing and matching and finding the right person to lead and the right group to put him around him. I agree with you on basically all of that and the parallel is to Durant basically the only way that you move those guys is if they tell you that there's no future and then you just have to maximize the asset you know if exactly. they basically say this exactly. end and i on the warriors point i think that there's a very important underlying thing that we in the media i i include myself of course in this is for me, the overarching thing of what succeeds in basketball, and it's part of the reason why I like basketball more than any other sport, is extraordinary talent, excellent execution, and a, a cogent game plan that maximizes that extraordinary talent. That will win, and those types of teams can beat any type of team. So yeah, they're, the Warriors are great right now. The Warriors are doing that. If Utah, with 
Gobert and Favors could ever get to that level of talent and execute what they do well, they can be they could you know they could be the next great team. The Timberwolves with Carl Anthony Towns, a really versatile big man who does the stereotypical stuff of ideally when he gets older of protecting the paint but also can shoot threes. These type of guys can be a part of those, you know, those elite teams to beat the Warriors. The challenge with it is not only identification but surrounding them with the right people from a on the court and from a coaching perspective. And you're right that the Kings do have those two pieces. The challenge with all of these teams is that it's more than two. You need, let's say you need three kind of top-end guys, like three guys who, when they're having a good season, can make an all-star team. And not, I'm not saying the all-star team is the, is the end-all, be-all of what guys are good or not, but that that's kind of the level. And then you need three to three to five more guys that are talented, that aren't going to mess up, that don't have fatal flaws, and getting that level of talent like the Warriors have, some of which through pretty much blatant luck, but some of it through just Bob Myers being awesome at his job, and Popovich has done the same thing. You know, Popovich unearthed Danny Green, who's been a huge part of it and who never mm-hmm. made any money until this year. You know, like that that's what makes this so hard, is that you, you have to get the top-end guys. You also need to have everything else work. And you're right that the team isn't going to do it by doing the Warriors. And anything that obscures getting that elite talent because, oh, you want somebody who looks like Steph Curry or does whatever, they're they're going to fail for that reason probably. Yeah, and, and it's the only reason the Spurs have a shot is because they do what the Spurs do. That, you know, and they, they've always reminded me of the, uh, the 90s Utah Jazz where if they have a six-point lead on you with five minutes left, it's really like an 18 point lead. Like they're not going to make, they, they will not beat themselves. They will systematically score on almost every possession. They'll eat up 22 seconds of every single shot clock. They'll slow you down on the defensive end and they'll make the game into a, a possessions game. And you can, at the five minute mark, you can count how many possessions there are left in the game. You can do the mathematical equation. If I don't get four stops and convert on every single possession, then they will beat me. And that is where I, I think that's the Spurs have a shot. It's why all of us are looking at this Western Conference Finals and praying that it's the Spurs and the Warriors and then looking at that as the Finals because no one else can compete with, with what those two teams can do. And so you have to find your own way to do it. And at the same time, you got to hope that your talent peaks when their talent is failing, which is why I think the Minnesota Timberwolves are like just they're in such a great spot because they will peak four years from now or five years from now as you're seeing the other teams fade away. And while they might still be playoff teams and, and really good teams, they aren't really, really contenders anymore down at that point. And, and that's where you have to come up and, and, so I, again, I'm hoping that the Kings can figure out a way to synergize this and put it together and be one of those teams that, I mean, that's the one problem that you are looking at a 22 year old and a 25 or a 23 year old and a 25 year old. So you are living in the Warriors era and you're going to have to beat the Warriors a different way and you're going to have to do it while their players are in their prime, just like your players are in their prime. And that's what makes it really tough. That's, that's why. Shaquille O'Neal, you know, it didn't matter what team he was playing on. They were always like favored to win because you had the most dominant big man to probably ever play the game. And that's just, 
it's it's the way that it works. You know, if you have Michael Jordan, then you're going to win. You're going to win championship after championship after championship. You made Scottie Pippen and and all the other players that they brought in there look much better than they probably were. And that's that's great. And, you know, some of those players are Hall of Famers now because of it. But you had Michael Jordan and the Golden State Warriors have Steph Curry. He's he's not quite the next generation's Michael Jordan yet. But I mean, it's kind of like LeBron. How many times has LeBron gone to the championship? It's I mean, and he'll probably go again this year. Yeah, this would be six in a row. That's crazy. Which is which is absolutely insane. And yeah, it's in a weaker Eastern Conference, but still six in a row. You know, you think about all the think about how many players on their own team got hurt last year. You know, they were able to make it with two of the three best players on their team basically not playing in the conference finals. And against granted, half the Hawks team got hurt too, but that's still it's still a remarkable accomplishment. And that actually this is a small thing, but I think you, sadly enough, considering considering your background, will appreciate this, is like I think people give LeBron too much flack for his, let's say, his record in the finals when, in certain circumstances with him, making the finals was a real achievement. That finals he made in Cleveland the first time around, when they got murdered by the Spurs, making the finals, to me, was a more significant accomplishment for him individually than a lot of what Kobe did during the Shaq-Kobe years when he was the second best, and a vital player, but the second best player on those title runs, because... LeBron was the alpha and the omega, and yeah, the team didn't make it as far, but if he had prime Shaq with him, he would have made it farther. Yeah. Uh, look, I think if you really look at what LeBron's done, um, I think what he's never going to be fully appreciated because his decision was not the decision. Not only did it like shock everybody that it was, it was, uh, he turned, you know, and, and he left Cleveland. I think that in itself was was huge. But I think the bigger thing is is that LeBron was the best. The best, the best, the best. And he decided that he couldn't do it without adding some of the other best players. And then it almost became like unfair. It it became like when you go to play five on five basketball and three dudes who are the best players at whatever gym you're at in America say, well, we're going to play together and we don't care who else, who the other two guys are. And we don't care who your five are. We're just get, and we don't care how bad we pound you. It doesn't matter. All that matters to us is at the end of the day, we won. So good luck with that. And I think that takes away value because he went out and he sought that. He sought that, that situation where he could just dominate and no one else had a chance. And that, I think for a lot of people, that kind of feels cheap and dirty. So maybe he's paying for that now. But the fact that he took a, a Cleveland team that was, I mean, when he left, what did they win? Like 15 games the next year? I mean, they were so bad the next year. And then, you know, again, Miami is, is nowhere near the team that they were before. They have, of course, we don't get to see them with Chris Bosch, and they've tried to, you know, assemble a, a core there that's really strong. But, you know, I think that's always going to kind of dirty his legacy, that his championships, there's two of them, right? And yes. they came, And they came at a time where it didn't feel good to anyone. The only one it felt good to was the three guys over there in the corner who, you know, look what we did. And it's like, okay, well, that's fine, you know, but look what everyone else did. Everyone else made it to the playoffs. The other sixteen, the other fifteen teams, they made it to the playoffs. You got beat by a, a quote a, a team, not three guys. 
And I think it's always going to take away. And while I appreciate what LeBron does and who he is and how he's uh, he's had to live in a fishbowl from the time he was like 16, I also at the same point, I think there's always going to be a little bit of a diminished return for what he accomplished. And I think what he accomplished now and what he accomplished, accomplished before without the real quote-unquote stars – and you can say Kyrie and, and Kevin Love. Kevin Love is not a star anymore. I mean, people always say, "Have you ever seen a, a player like Cousins who win, who who can put up all these numbers and all this stuff, and they can only win twenty nine games or thirty three games?" It's like, yeah, it, it was Kevin Love, but Kevin Love just wasn't nearly as good on Minnesota. But he did the same thing. He had huge, huge numbers and was never able to win anything. And you have to be in the right situation, and the right situation for Kevin Love is to go and play with LeBron and go, you know, go to championships, but not really have a chance to win a championship. At least in my book, I don't think they have a chance. Um, if you took DeMarcus out of Sacramento and you put him on a team with LeBron and Kyrie, I mean, and that, like, they came so hard at the Kings. I mean, it, they were offering Mozgov and Love at the trade deadline. I mean, that's the potential there was just astronomical, what you could have accomplished. Yeah, and I think that, what is hard for LeBron in this sense is that all of the other truly elite players of modern times, so like let's say Bird and Magic on, all of those those best of the best guys, Bird, Magic, MJ, LeBron, Tim Duncan, Kobe, except for Shaq, but Shaq's, Shaq is always an anomaly. Everybody's always understood that. Yeah. That all of them, and even Shaq to a point, won where they were originally, but again, with the exception of Shaq, they all were in major markets and they all were able to put good enough surrounding talent around those guys where they were able to win a championship. Cleveland, when LeBron left, it was completely clear and unambiguous that it was impossible at that time for Cleveland to put together enough enough championship level talent around LeBron, as great as he was, to win a title. He would have gone through his 20s without winning a title. And the parallel... And people, of course, people in Oklahoma City already hate me because of what I've done before, and they're going to hate me even more now. The parallel is Kevin Durant. If Kevin Durant signs a four- or five-year contract with the Thunder, the conversation will immediately become, almost on the day he signs the contract, whether he will be the best player to not win a championship by the end of his prime. You know, like, there's a different thing with Charles, because maybe maybe KD would win one when he's older, you know, when he's 34, 35. I think he'll, he'll age really well. And I think LeBron saw that, especially with how much how he's he was so much bigger even than Durant is for a lot of reasons, and said, I can't be that guy. And so he was able to jump into a situation where he knew that for that period, they were going to win at least one title, and they were probably going to win more than one. They ended up winning two. And I think that while the decision in terms of the way it was presented was completely horrible and really did hurt his long-term legacy... The choice that led to the decision was rock solid in terms of his legacy. I think, yeah, the I, I just think that when you look back, though, it's always going to feel that way. For sure. It's, oh, and, I mean, he, he's going to walk away with two rings. And, I, I mean, maybe he will walk away with more rings. I mean, there's always a possibility that someone gets injured. There's always a possibility that something completely falls apart, that, you know, that a group gets old way faster than you think they will and, and stuff like that. But... Or that they find someone that's better than the the three, the tandem 
the trio that they have now, that they find a different way to, to go and do this. But it's just difficult. It, if you're, if you're LeBron, you're looking at your legacy. I mean, I, it's not going to be Michael Jordan's legacy. I mean, and again, that's who that guy, you, you kind of hope that he would have been, that he would have been able to figure it out and make a couple of players around him so much better because I, it's not like the, the Bulls are, I mean, you got Scotty and then you got Rodman, but Rodman was there for what three of the rings. And outside of that, are there any other Hall of Famers? I mean, you have the greatest player possibly ever. And then you've got Scottie Pippen, who is probably a top 50 player. And then you had a bunch of role players. I mean, Randy Brown started tons of games. Ron Harper with blown out knees and, and Steve Kerr and, you know, Paxson. I mean, Luke Longley, you look at the group that was around them. And it's not like they put together the uh, the the late '80s Lakers or the late '80s Boston Celtics, where Larry Bird had you know four other Hall of Famers and Magic Johnson had three other Hall of Famers, whatever it is. I mean, those teams are are so stacked and so incredible for their generations, and it's different. I guess you, you got to organically build those things in order for them to feel real. I think that's like again to go back to the the whole you know, playing guys in a pickup. If, if you had the same five guys and you kept going in and getting, getting beat and, and, and fight or working your way up into the, the, where you get to go play in the, the championship of, of your gym, but it took you three years, it took you four years and you did it with the same five guys and you figured out a way to get better. And all of you worked out together and you figured out different schemes. And that's one thing, but to just go out and seek out the best, I think it's always going to feel that way. But that's just me. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Any anything else you want to discuss? I don't know. You know, we just uh, what are we like four hours in, and we, <laughs> we we haven't even discussed the biggest elephant in the room, and that's the Sacramento Kings coaching search. But that's up to you. Well, so I I think part of the reason I haven't really brought it up is that it feels like there's so much that's unknown. I mean, there was that report that they're looking at like 17 different people. So you, what what is your feel on where that's going? Okay, let me just explain things in plain English to people. The Sacramento Kings have not told anybody who they are bringing in for an interview. They haven't told them when there will be an interview. They haven't told them their list of names. They haven't told them anyone anything. They Their policy during this time is to not to confirm or deny anyone who's been added to a list or taken off the list or who comes through or doesn't come through. So, if you want to beat the Sacramento Kings up for having an open discussion on who their next coach to carry this team into a new arena to help them make the decision on DeMarcus Cousins, to help them build something better than what they have had for the last decade, you have to understand that it's not them putting any of the information out there. It is 100% driven by people who are trying to get some of these coaching applicants a job and i i understand it but if if people don't understand the business side of it there's not a whole lot we can do to help them yeah it's a great point you understand what i'm saying of course i do like if a reporter wants to write something they're going to write something i mean i have a slider on csn and i keep adding to the slider we're up to 14 i could probably add brian shaw i'm just gonna put it out there do you think brian shaw is getting the sacramento king's coaching job I mean, do you I think, think it's unlikely, but it's possible. Do you think Sam Mitchell is getting the Sacramento Kings coaching job? That one I'll say no. Or uh, Mike Woodson. I, I mean, I can keep going down the list. But 
that doesn't stop them from at least looking and seeing who's out there and letting Vladi Divac feel. And I mean, again, I think one of the things that I'll point to the, the other failures of the George Carl uh, situation is, and, and I'm not bashing his coaches. D- trust me. I'm not. I, I, John Welsh is a, is an exceptional coach. And I, I think the absolute world of Corliss Williamson. And I think that Chad Iskey is a very, very good young coach. The Sacramento Kings walked into the last season with not a single coach with uh, on the staff outside of George Carl that, that had ever coached an NBA game on his own. And then you look at the Clippers staff, and they've got Mike Woodson. They've got Lawrence Frank. I mean, they have 800 games, 1,000 a, a games, 1,500 games of experience on their staff. Well, when you're doing an extensive coaching search, and you know that a lot of these coaches – don't have jobs and they they want to come in and interview maybe they don't get the head coaching job maybe maybe Vinny Del Negro doesn't get the head coaching job maybe Mike Woodson doesn't or Sam Mitchell but would you mind having a couple of those guys on your bench would you mind at least having a conversation with them and showing them what your plan is and and your arena and and the future of the Sacramento Kings i think it doesn't hurt and if you're looking at the Kings already know First of all, Jeff Van Gundy was off the table. The Tom Thibodeau was was chasing Minnesota from the start, and they know that Scotty Brooks was on his way somewhere. But outside of that, you know, you have the Suns who decided to keep their coach. You have the Nets who brought in, who's a young and upcoming coach in Atkinson. All of these coaches are still available. I mean, the list of coaches, I, I again, I did a slider. I meant like 14, but I could probably go to 18 names. There's some really good coaches on that slider. I mean, some really good. So why not open up an extensive search since everyone else is done pretty much and bring in everyone that you could possibly think of to give you a really good idea of what is available and some ideas that you don't have. You know, do I have my favorite that I like out of that group? Yes. I have a couple of guys that I think, oh man, that could really, really be a strong coach. I know the team as well as anyone. I've been around them for six years. I know DeMarcus really well. And I look at the names that are out there and I say, okay, a, a retread, a quote unquote retread isn't going to work. That's, it's just someone who has failed multiple times in multiple situations. It's just not going to happen. But that's not all of the names that are on that list. There are some coaches that have been highly successful in other places and their run ended. You know, a, a guy like Nate McMillan, are you kidding me? How has that guy not been a head coach for three years in the league? And not only did he like, he took a year off, figure out everything that's going on in the world. But then, I mean, he traveled, he did all this stuff. But then to he, he went around and he toured and he did, you know, sort of what Thibodeau did. But before Thibodeau did it, I mean, he went to all of these other pro teams and and just hung out and figured out what they're doing. And, you know, went to uh, he went to a bunch of college teams as well and just kind of like got got reimmersed in basketball. And then he goes and he works for Frank Vogel, which is an outstanding young coach, and you get a new perspective and you start building your knowledge base even further. I love what he's done as far as a coach who was highly successful for eight years in Portland, completely reinvented the jail blazers. Uh, I, I loved what he did in Seattle before that. Um, you know, that's, that's not a retread. You know, would you consider Rick Adelman a retread? Cause when he came to the Kings, in what 1998 
He had just been fired after two years with Golden State, but then he had an incredible eight-year run or seven-year run with the Portland Trailblazers. And then there are retreads, and then there are guys who are just looking for that next eight- to ten-year coaching job that will carry them through, and they can do great things. And so I think it's a good search, and I I appreciate the fact that they're going to look and they're going to talk and they're going to – they're going to really give themselves an opportunity to see what a lot of these coaches are about. And they're also not going to get blown away with like the Eric Musselman presentation is so notorious in Sacramento when he came in and they were looking at a bunch of coaches and he came in with like a portfolio on every single player and everything that he would do and all this stuff. And he laid it on the table and it was it's almost like a guy who has an, a brilliant PowerPoint presentation with lights and lasers and smoke. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this guy's incredible. The Kings aren't falling for that. They're going to give an honest-to-goodness look. Why not? There are a ton of qualified coaches. Three years ago, every team in the league, what, 13 head coaches were hired, and almost all of them were brand-new head coaches. And all of these guys who have been you know, coaching and bouncing around, they just kind of got – they got left out, and now here they all are. They're all open for you to look at. They've had time to go and do other things and to learn different ways. And I think it's a it's a good approach, but also, again, keep in mind that it's going to be a rocky, crazy road, and that's not going to be driven by the Sacramento Kings. It's going to be driven by people outside of the Sacramento Kings who are leveraging and trying to get their guy in or not get their guy in or make the Kings look bad in some way, shape, or form. I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, if you're going to not take the Sacramento Kings coaching job because they brought in a uh, a chef who makes um, organic meals for your players and and they decided not to allow the coaching staff, which is, you know, like not just the, the standard, like seven or eight coaches, but then the, all of the other guys that – are sitting there working in a gym all day with players. So we're looking like another 15, 15 people. You're not going to go there because they had a personal chef making organic food for the players and they wouldn't let the coaching staff get in on that. Then to me, that's just ridiculous. I mean, the, the Sacramento Kings are the easiest target ever. They've made themselves into that. But just keep in mind that when you fire people, they don't usually talk well about you. If you have continuity, if you keep people, if you don't, let you know the door hit a bunch of people on the way out then you don't have these issues that the kings have had and new ownership has shifted hands they've they've gone through a lot of people if you just get some continuity you just hire somebody and you let them run the team for i don't know four or five years you're not going to have all of this craziness surrounding your franchise and that's what the kings need to do at this point they need to find the right guy and they need to search through a long list of candidates and when the right guy steps in the door, I think they'll know it. I do believe that Vlade Divas will know it when the right guy steps in the door. And I think that's the underlying point of all this is, you know, if you're going to have an exhaustive search, which I also support, you have to choose the right person. But guess what? You're going to have to do that anyway. So why not give yourself more bites at the apple? And there aren't that many jobs that are open, you know, that are open now. There are, you know, and we'll see if maybe some of the other ones open up Houston of course could but i think Houston even they already know who they want and i don't they think they do and they i do. don't i don't think that person's going to particularly be involved if that's who they get in the Sacramento search and so they owe it to themselves to do that and the important part is to get it right but they they have to do that anyway so you yeah. do it if it works great 
and it's a, a super big decision for them. It, the timing does matter to the point that, you know, they're going to have a top 10 draft pick, and it's it's nice to have somebody in place just because what they're going to want to do, especially when you have as many moving parts as the Kings might. But that's this process, and the team, especially considering the specific timing of this, yep. has to has to put their best foot forward because if they don't, then there there are really really long term ramifications. Yeah, and and I'll add this too. You need to look in someone's eye, and when they tell you what their plan would be for Demarcus Cousins, you need to know whether they're telling you what they think you want to hear or whether they're actually telling you what they believe. And that's a big deal because you could have a guy come in and say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I, I love Demarcus. I love his potential." You could you know listen to him on the phone. Oh my gosh, he's so incredible. You look him in the eye while he's saying it, and you know he's lying, and you know that you're going to get yourself in the same situation like they did with George Carl, where the first thing he wanted to do was get DeMarcus out the door. I mean, it wasn't even before he coached him. He wanted him gone before he even coached him. And you need to like look those people in the eye and say, well, look, we're not going to have DeMarcus, or we are going to have DeMarcus. Or, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like you have to look. The process is... I don't think it's flawed. I think you need to bring in as many people as possible because all of these guys are going to have a different idea. And I want to listen to their ideas. I want to see if someone has a really, really good idea about what they would do with this team going forward. And I also want to know that they can command a room because unless you've had them as a player or you've had them as a teammate, uh, you don't really know. You know, you need to see what they look like in front of you and whether you really do believe that they can they can manage this group of players or the group of players that you want to put on the, on the floor. So yeah, it, it's going to be interesting, it, but I mean, for me, it's great because all I'm doing is writing Kings news during the playoffs Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, they keep themselves, you know, sort of in the national conversation, but if they don't get it right again, they're just going to get roasted. That, and yeah. Well, no, uh, in they, fairness, they'll probably get roasted either way, but that's just the way it is with the Kings. <laughs> Isn't that the facts? And again, that's why you don't fire people all the time at the NBA level. Because once you fire them, they get to tell everybody everything and their perspective, not not the, the truth or the reality, but their truth or their reality. And that's where you are if you're the Sacramento Kings. Everybody knows the Kings' dirty laundry because they've let a lot of people go. And until you stop that and you find some continuity and find the right mix of people, you're always going to have that issue. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, anytime, man. Thanks again to James Ham for taking the time. You can see him or read him at CSN California slash CSN Bay Area. And you can also follow him on Twitter at James underscore Ham, J-A-M-E-S underscore H-A-M. Absolute pleasure having him on. Love talking kings with him and he's so connected with his team and has been for years you can even just see it in his passing references and it's great to have him on i want to do more of those with the teams that interest me i will not do every team this year also because doing it once a week i'm not going to be able to get into the the substance with everybody it'd be you know 20 minutes per team and I'd, i don't want to do that i'd rather do an hour or in this case an hour and a half on a team and really go through it in some depth so that's what i'm going to do and i wanted to also take a quick minute this actually was recorded while when I, I was actually found out that Prince had passed away while we were recording that. And so I wanted to take a quick moment just to pay tribute to Prince, who's a superlative musician, superlative performer, one of the best live performers I ever was lucky enough to see in person. And 
The reason why I think he resonated a lot with me, and something that actually, this will surprise people probably, has kind of affected the way that I think about the very, very small amount of fame that I have, is what I always respected the most about Prince was that it always felt like in every public thing he did, which was pretty rare, that he was himself. And he was thoughtful, he, he was creative, he was worldly, and he was himself. And some people didn't like that, some, most people did, and... I think there's something really great about that, because then what you know is that people are gravitating to or away from the genuine article, and that is a, a nice thing, and that's something that I've always wanted for, you know, for myself, is that if, if you like me, great, if you don't, you don't, but at least, you, at least you're getting the real picture, and so I wanted to say a little tribute to Prince because of that, because I thought that was, it's important for me. If you enjoyed this podcast or any other one, you can subscribe on iTunes, you can write us a review, give a score. It's a really great thing to do because it does connect with iTunes and ratings and all this stuff, but also anything you do, recommendations in person, on Twitter or whatever, that's a way of connecting people with the show. And the hope is always that they'll like it. Some people won't. I'm okay with that. But I want to put out a, a, a worthwhile conversation every week. That's really what the goal of Real Jam Radio is. And your input is important. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email MBA at gmail.com. Also, if you want to follow my work, you can check out my Facebook page, which is Facebook slash Daniel Rue MBA. Also, I have a weekly-ish mailing list that I do, which combines my pieces, my podcast, my recommendations. And of course, right for the Sword News, right for Real GM, and we'll have a, a big new announcement in the next couple of days. It's not all the way ready yet, but it's beyond exciting for me. So you can look forward to that. going to have a, a ton of new content and responsibilities with a very exciting venture. So that's all the tease that I can do for right now. And thank you all so much for listening. It is an absolute pleasure to do this. And of course, do dunked on the last, the last real jam radio was the one year anniversary with Nate, which is so much fun to do. So thank you all for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-Foot by 10-Foot Shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.